Chapter 2 Between one stride and the next, dreary Windsor became elegant St. James. The stuffy cell of a room gave way to a bright tapestries and polished silver, and the Mad King's mumblings were replaced by a heavy quiet, and a man sitting at the head of an ornate table, gripping a goblet of wine and looking thoroughly put out. "'You're late,' observed the Prince Regent. "'Apologies,' said Kell, with a too short bow. "'I had an errand.' The Prince Regent sent out his cup. "'I thought I was your errand, Master Kell.' Kell straightened. "'My orders, Your Highness, are to see the King first. "'I wish you wouldn't indulge him.' said the Prince Regent, whose name was also George. Kell found the grey London habit of sons taking father's names both redundant and confusing. With a dismissive wave of his hand, it gets his spirits up. Is that a bad thing? Said, asked, asked Kell. For him, yes. He's been in a frenzy. He'll be in a frenzy later, dancing on the tables, talking of magic and other Londons. What trick did you do for him this time? Convince him he could fly? Kell had only made that mistake once. He learned on his next visit that the King of England had nearly walked out the window on the third floor. I assure you, I have no, I have given no demonstrations. Prince George pinched the bridge of his nose. He cannot hold his tongue the way he used to. That's why he is confined to his quarters. Imprisoned, then. Prince George ran his hand along the table's gilded edge. Windsor is a perfectly respectable place to be kept. A respectable prison is still a prison, thought Kell, withdrawing a second letter from his coat pocket. Your correspondence? The prince forces him to stand there as he read the note. He never commented on the way it smelled of flowers. And then as he withdrew a half-finished reply from the inside pocket of his coat and completed it. He was, he was clearly taking his time in an effort to spite Kell. But Kell didn't mind. He occupied himself by drumming his fingers on the edge of a gilded table. Each time he made it from pinky to forefinger, one of the room's many candles went out. Must be a draught, he said absently while the prince regent's grip tightened on his quill. By the time he finished the note, he'd broken two and was in a bad mood, while Kell found his own disposition greatly improved. He held out his hand for the letter, but the prince regent did not give it to him. Instead, he pushed up from his table. I'm stiff from sitting. Walk with me. Cal wasn't a fan of the idea, but since he couldn't very well leave empty-handed, he was forced to oblige. But not before pocketing the prince's latest unbroken quill from the table. Will you go straight back? asked the prince as he led Kell down the hall to a discreet door half-concealed by the curtain. Soon, said Kell, trail, trailing by a, a stride. Two members of the royal guard had joined them in the hall and now slunk behind like shadows. Kell could feel their eyes on him, and he wondered how much they would have been told about their guest. The royals were always expected to know, but the understanding of those in their service was left up to discretion. I thought your only business was with me, said the prince. I'm a fan of your city, responded Kell lightly. And what I do is draining. I go for a walk and get some air, then make my way back. The prince's mouth was a thin, grim line. I fear the air is not as replenishing here in the city as the countryside. What is it you call us? Grey London? These days, that is far too apt a name. Stay for dinner. The prince ended nearly every sentence with a period.
even the questions. Rye was the same way. Kel thought it must simply be a byproduct of never being told no. You'll fare better here, pressed the prince. Let me revive you with wine and company. It seemed a kind offer enough, but the prince regent didn't do things out of kindness. Kindness. I cannot stay, said Kel. I insist the table is set. And who is coming, wondered Kel. What did the prince want? To put him on display? Kel often suspected that he would like to do as much, if for no other reason than that the younger George found secrets cumbersome, preferring spectacle. But for all his faults, the prince wasn't a fool, and only a fool would give someone like Kel a chance to stand out. Grey London had forgotten magic long ago, and Kel wouldn't be the one to remind them of it. A lavish kindness, your highness, but I am better left a spectator than made a show. Kel tipped his head so that the copper hair tumbled out of his eyes, revealing not only the crisp blue of the left one, but also the solid black of the right, a black that ran edge to edge, filling white and iris both. There was nothing human about that eye. It was pure magic, the mark of a blood magician, of an Antari. Kel relished what he saw in the prince regent's eyes when they tried to hold Kel's gaze. Caution, discomfort, and fear. Do you know why our worlds are kept separate, your highness? He didn't wait for the prince to answer. It is to keep yours safe. You see, there's a time ages ago when they were not so separate, when the doors ran between your world and mine, and others, and anyone with a bit of power could pass through. Magic itself could pass through. But the thing about magic, added Kel, is that it preys on the strong-minded and the weak-willed, and one of the worlds couldn't stop itself. The people fed on the magic, and the magic fed on them until they ate their bodies and their minds, and then their souls. Black London, whispered the prince regent. Kel nodded. He hadn't given the city its color mark. Everyone, at least everyone in red London and white, and those of you in grey who knew anything at all knew the legend of Black London. It was a bedtime story, a fairy tale, a warning of the city and the world that wasn't anymore. Do you know what Black London and yours have in common, your highness? The prince regent's eyes narrowed, but he didn't interrupt. Both lack temperaments. Both hunger for power. The only reason your London still exists is because it was cut off. It learned to forget. You did not want it to remember. What Kel didn't say was that Black London had a wealth of magic in its veins, and Grey London hardly had any. He wanted to make a point, and by the looks of it, he had. This time, when he held out his hand for the letter, the prince didn't refuse or even resist. Kel tucked the parchment in his pocket along with a stolen quill. Thank you as ever for your hospitality he said, offering an exaggerated bow. The prince regent summoned a guard with a single snap of his fingers. See, Master Kell gets where he's going. And then, without another word, he turned and strode away. The royal guards left Kell at the edge of the park. St. James Place loomed behind him. Grey London lay ahead. He took a deep breath and tasted smoke on the air. As eager as he was to get back home, he had some business to attend to. And after dealing with the king's ailments and the prince's attitude... Kel could use a drink. He brushed off his sleeves, straightened his collar, and set out toward the heart of the city. 
His feet carried him through St. James Park, down an ambling dirt path that ran beside the river. The sun was setting and the air was crisp, if not clean, a fall breeze fluttering the edges of his black coat. He came upon a wooden footbridge that spanned the stream, and his boots sounded softly as he crossed it. Kel paused at the arc of a bridge, Buckingham House, lantern lit behind him, and the Thames ahead. Water sloshed gently under the wooden slats, and he rested his elbow on the rail and stared down at it. When he flexed his fingers absently, the current stopped. The water was stilling, smooth as glass beneath him. He considered his reflection. You're not that handsome, Rye would say whenever he caught Gil, Kel gazing in the mirror. Can't get enough of myself, Kelwin answered, even though he was never looking at himself. Not all of himself, anyway, only his eye, his right one. Even in, red un even in red London, where magic flourished, the eye set him apart, marked him always as other. A tingling, a tinkling laugh sounded off to Kel's right, followed by a grunt and a few other less distinct noises and the tension went out of his hand, the stream surging back into motion beneath him. He continued on until the park gave way to the streets of London, and then the looming form of Westminster. Kell had a fondness for the abbey, and he nodded to it, as if an old friend. Despite the city's soot and dirt and cluster and its poor, it had something Red London lacked, a resistance to change, an appreciation for the enduring, and the effort it took to make something so. How many years had it taken to construct the abbey? How many more would it stand? In red London, tastes turn as off as oh, in red London, tastes turn as often as seasons, and with them, buildings went up and came down and went up again in different forms. Magic made things simple. Sometimes, thought Kell, it made things too simple. There had been nights back home when he felt like he went to bed in one place and woke up in another. But here, Westminster Abbey always stood, waiting to greet him. He made his way past the towering stone structure, through the streets, crowded with carriages, and down a narrow road that hugged the dean's yard, walled by mossy stone. The narrow road grew narrower still before it finally stopped in front of a tavern. And here Kell stopped too, and shrugged out of his coat. He turned it once more from right to left, in exchanging the black affair with silver buttons for a more modest street-worn look, a brown high-collar jacket with fraying hems and the scuffed elbows. He patted the pockets and, satisfied that he was ready, went inside. Chapter 3 The Stone's Throw was an odd little tavern. Its walls were dingy and its floors were stained, and Kel knew for a fact that its owner, Baron, watered down the drinks. But despite it all, he kept coming back. It fascinated him, this place, despite, <clears throat> because despite its grungy appearance and grungier customers, the fact was that, by luck or by design, the stone's throw was always here. The name changed, of course, and so did the drinks it served, but at this very spot, in gray, red, and white London alike, stood a tavern. It wasn't a source, per se, like the Thames or the Stonehenge or a dozen of lesser-known beacons of magic in the world, but... It was something, a phenomenon, a fixed point. And since Kel conducted his affairs in the tavern, whether the sign read the stone's throw or the setting sun or the scorched bone, it made Kel himself a kind of fixed point too. Few people would appreciate the poetry. Holland might, if Holland appreciated anything. 
But poetry aside, the tavern was a perfect place to do business. Grey London's rare believers, those whimsical few who clung to the idea of magic, who caught hold of a whisper or a whiff, gravitated here, drawn by the sense of something else, something more. Kel was drawn to it too. The difference was that he knew what was tugging at them. Of course, the magically inclined patrons of the stone's throw weren't drawn only by the subtle, bone-deep pull of power, or the promise of something different, something more. They were drawn by him, or at least the rumor of him. Word of mouth was its own kind of magic, and here in the stone's throw, the word of the magician passed men's lips as often as the diluted ale. He studied the amber liquid in his own cup. Evening, Kel, said Baron, pausing to top off his drink. Evening, Baron, said Kel. It was as much as they ever said to each other. The owner of the stone's throw was built like a brick wall, if a brick wall decided to grow a beard. Tall and wide and impressively steady. No doubt Baron had seen his share of the strange, but it never seemed to faze him. Or if it did, he knew how to keep it to himself. A clock on the wall behind the counter struck seven, and Kel pull, pulled a trinket from his, new, from his now-worn brown coat. It was a wooden box roughly the size of a palm and fastened with a simple metal clasp. When he undid the clasp and slid the lid off his thumb, with his thumb, the box unfolded into a game board with five grooves, each of which held an element. In the first groove, a lump of earth. In the second, a spoon's worth of water. Third, in the place of air sat a thimble of loose sand. In the fourth, a drop of oil, highly flammable. And the fifth, final groove, a bit of bone. Back in Kell's world, the box and its contents served not only, not only as a toy, but as a test, way for children to discover which elements they were drawn to, and which were drawn to them. Most quickly outgrew the game, moving on to either spell work or larger, more complicated versions as they honed their, their skills. But because of both its prevalence and its limitations, the element set could be found in almost every household in Red London and most likely in the villages beyond, though Kel could not be certain. But here in the city without magic, it was truly rare, and Kel was certain his client would approve. After all, the man was a collector. In Grey London, only two kinds of people came to find Kel. Collectors and enthusiasts. Collectors were wealthy and bored, and usually had no, intention, uh, no interest in magic itself. They wouldn't know the difference between a healing rune and a binding spell, and Kel enjoyed their patronage immensely. Enthusiasts were more troublesome. They fancied themselves true magicians and wanted to pur purchase trinkets, not for the sake of owning them or for the luxury of putting them on display, but for use. Kel did not like enthusiasts, in part because he found their aspirations wasted and in part because serving them felt much closer to treason. Which is why, when a young man came to sit beside him and Kel looked up, expecting a collector client, and, found, and finding instead an unknown enthusiast, his mood soured considerably. Suit taken, said the enthusiast, even though he was already sitting. Go away, said Kel unevenly. But the enthusiast did not leave. Kel knew the man was an enthusiast. He was gangly and awkward, his jacket a fraction too short for his build, and when he brought his long arms to rest on the counter and the fabric inched up, Kel could make out the end of a tattoo, a poorly drawn power room meant to bind magic to one's body. Is it true, the enthusiast persisted, what they say? Depends on who's talking, said Kel, closing the box, 
sliding the lid and the clasp back into place. And what's been said? He had done this dance a hundred times. Out of the corner of his blue eye, he watched the man's lips choreograph his next move. If he'd been a collector, Cal might have cut him some slack, but men who waded into waters claiming they could swim should not need a raft. That you bring things, said the enthusiast, eyes darting around the tavern. Things from other places. Kel took a sip of his drink, and the enthusiast took his silence for assent. I suppose I should introduce myself, the man went on. Edward Archibald Tuttle Third, but I go by Ned. Kel raised his eyebrow. The young enthusiast was obviously waiting for him to respond with an introduction of his own. But as the man clearly already had a notion of who he was, Kel bypassed the formalities and said, What do you want? Edward Archibald, Ned, twisted in his seat and leaned in conspiratorially. I'm looking for a bit of earth. Kel tipped his glass toward the door. Check the park. The young man managed a low, uncomfortable laugh, and Kel finished his drink. A bit of earth. It seemed like a small request. It wasn't. Most enthusiasts knew that their own world held, a, held little power, but many believed that possessing a piece of another world would allow them to tap into its magic. And there was a time when they would have been right. A time when the doors stood open at the sources and the power flowed between the worlds, and anyone with a bit of magic in their veins and a token from another world could not only tap into that power, but also move with it, step from one London to another. But that time was gone. The doors were gone, destroyed centuries ago after Black London fell, and took the rest of the world with it, leaving nothing but stories in its wake. Not only the Antari possessed enough power, oh, sorry, only the Antari possessed enough power to make new doors, and even only then they could pass, oh, what? Now, only the Antari possessed enough power to make new doors, and even then, only they could pass through them. I got it. And sorry, it always been rare, but no one knew how rare until the doors were closed and their numbers began to wane. The source of Antari power had always been a mystery. It followed no bloodline, but one thing was certain. The longer the worlds were kept apart, the fewer Antari emerged. Now, Kel and Holland seemed to be the last of a rapidly dying breed. Well, pressed Ned, will you bring me a bit of earth or not? Kel's eyes went to the tattoo on the enthusiast's wrists. What so many gray worlders didn't seem to grasp was that a spell was only as strong as the person casting it. How strong was this one? A smile tugged at the corner of Kel's lips as he nudged the game box in the man's directions. Now what is this? Now lifted the child's game gingerly as if it might burst into flames at any moment. Kel briefly considered igniting it, but restrained himself. He fiddled with the box until his fingers found the clasp, and the board fell open on the counter. Elements glittered in the flickering pub light. Tell you what, said Kel. Choose one element, make it move from its notch, without touching it, of course, and I'll bring you your dirt. Ned's brow furrowed. He considered the options, then jabbed his finger at the water. That one. At least he wasn't fool enough to try for the bone, thought Kel. Air, earth, and water were the easiest to will. Even Rye, who showed no affinity whatsoever, could manage to rouse those. Fire was a bit trickier, but by far the hardest piece to move was the bit of bone. And for good reason. Those who could move bones could move bodies with strong magic, even in Red London. 
Kel watched as Ned's hand hovered over the game board. He began to whisper to the water under his breath in a language that might have been Latin or gibberish, but surely it wasn't the king's English. Kel's mouth quirked. Elements had no tongue, or rather, they could be spoken to in any. The words themselves were less important than the focus that they brought to the speaker's mind, the connection they helped to form, the power they tapped into. In short, the language did not matter. It, only the intention did. The enthusiast could have spoken to the water in plain English for all the good it would do him, and yet he muttered in his own invented language, and as he did, he moved his hand clockwise over the small board. Kel sighed and propped his elbow up on the counter, and, there, and he rested his head on his hand while Ned struggled, face turning red from the effort. After several long moments, the water gave a single ripple. It could have been caused by Kel yawning or the man gripping the counter, and then it went still. Ned stared down at the board, veins bulging, his hands closed into a fist, and for a moment, Kel worried he'd smash the little games. But his game, but his knuckles came down beside it hard. Oh well said Kel. It's rigged, growled Ned. Kel lifted his hand from his his head from his hand. Is it? he asked. He flexed his fingers a fraction and the clod of earth rose from the groove and drifted casually into his palm. Are you certain? Are you certain? he added, as a small gust caught up by the sand and caught up the sand and swirled it in the air, circling his wrist. Maybe it is. The water drew itself upon up into a drop and then turned to ice in his palm. Or maybe it's not, he added as the oil caught fire in its groove. Maybe, said Kel, as a piece of bone rose into the air. You simply lack any semblance of power. Ned gaped at him as the five elements each performed their own small dance around Kel's fingers. He could hear Rise chiding, show off, and then... As casually as he had willed the pieces up, he let them fall. The earth and the ice hit their grooves with a thud and click and clink with the sand settled soundlessly in its bowl. And a clink, what? The earth and ice hit their grooves with a thud and a clink while the sand settled soundlessly in the bowl and the flames dancing over the oil died. Only the bone was left, hovering in the air between them. Kel considered it all the while feeling the weight of the enthusiast's hungry gaze. How much for it, he demanded. Not for sale, answered Kel, then corrected himself. Not for you. Ned, sh Ned shoved up from his stool and turned to go, but Kel wasn't done with him yet. If I brought you a dirt, he said, what would you give me for it? He watched the enthusiast freeze in his steps. Name your price. My price? Kel didn't smuggle trinkets between worlds for money. Money changed. He would do with shilling. What would he do with shillings in Red London? Any pounds? He'd have better luck burning them than trying to buy anything with them in the white, in the white alleys. He supposed he could spend the money there, but whatever would he spend it on? So, no. Kel was playing a different game. I don't want your money, he said. I want something that matters, something you don't want to lose. Ned nodded hastily. Fine, stay here and I'll... Not tonight, said Kel. Then when? Kel shrugged. Within the month. You expect me to sit here and wait? I don't expect you to do anything, said Kel with a shrug. 
It was cruel, he knew, but he wanted to see how far the enthusiast was willing to go, and if his resolve held firm and he were here next month, decided Kel, he would bring the man his bag of earth. Now run along. Ned's mouth opened and closed, and he huffed and trudged off, nearly knocking into a small, bespectacled man on his way out. Kel plucked the bit of bone out of the air and turned it into and returned it to its box as the bespectacled man approached the now vacant stool. "'What was that about?' he asked, taking the seat. "'Nothing of bother,' said Kel. "'Is that for me?' asked the man, nodding at, a game, at the game box. Kel nodded and offered it to the collector, who lifted it gingerly from his hand. He let the gentleman fiddle with it, well, and then proceeded to show him how it worked. The collector's eyes widened. "'Splendid, splendid!' And the man dug into his pocket and withdrew a folded handker handkerchief. It made a thud when he set it on the counter. Kel reached out and unwrapped the parcel to find a glimmering silver box with a miniature crank on the side. A music box, Kel smiled to himself. They had music in Red London and music boxes too, but most of theirs played by enchantment, not cog, and Kel was rather taken by the effort that went into these little machines. So much of gray of the gray world was clunky, but now and then its lack of magic leaded to ingenuity. Take its music boxes, a complex but elegant design. So many parts, so much work, all to create a little tune. Do you need me to explain it to you? said the collector. Kel shook his head. No, he said softly, I have several. The man's brow knit. Will it still do? Kel nodded and began to fold the, hank the handkerchief over the trinket and keep it to keep it safe. Don't you want to hear it? Kel did, but not here in this dingy little tavern where the sound could not be savored. Besides, it was time to go home. He left the collector at the counter, tinkering with the child's game, marveling at the way that neither the melted ice nor the sand spilled out of the grooves. No matter how, he shook the box and, this, and stepped out into the night. Kel made his way toward the Thames listening to the sounds of the city around him, the nearby carriages and fareways cries, in some pleasure, some pain, some in pleasure, some in pain. They were still, though they were still nothing compared to the screams that carried through white London. The river soon be, the river soon came into sight, a streak of black in the night as the church bells rang out in the distance, eight of them in all. Time to go. He reached the brick wall of the shop that faced the water and stopped it and stopped in its shadow, pushing up his sleeve. His arm still his arm had started to ache from the first two cuts, but he drew out his knife and carved a third, touching his fingers first to the blood and then to the wall. One of the cords around his throat held a red lin, the one that King George had returned to him that afternoon, and he took hold of the coin and pressed it to the blood on the bricks. Well then, he said, Let's go home. He often found himself speaking to the magic, not commanding, but simply conversing. Magic was a living thing, like everyone knew, but to Kel, it felt like more, like a friend, like family. It was, after all, a part of him, much more than it was a part of most, and he couldn't help feeling like it knew what he was saying, what he was feeling, not only when he summoned it, but always, in every heartbeat and every breath. He was, after all, Antari. And Antari could speak to blood, to life, to magic itself, the first and final element, the one that lived in all and was of none. 
He could feel the magic stir against his palm, the brick warming and cooling at the same time with it, and Kel hesitated, waiting to see if it would answer without being asked. But it held, waiting for him to give voice to his command. Elemental magic may speak any tongue, but Ansari magic, true magic, blood magic, spoke one and only one. Kel flexed his fingers on the wall. As travars, he said, travel. This time the magic listened and obeyed. The world rippled and Kel stepped forward through the door and into darkness, shrugging off gray London like a coat.